We are to Acts chapter 2 this morning, and and we're really looking at verses 40 and 41. Peter finishing up, or after his sermon, we read as Luke accounts to us in verse 40 of Acts chapter 2, and with many other words he testified... And exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse, this crooked generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. We can point to events in our lives that forever changed us. What we've seen in the last couple of Sundays in Acts chapter 2 are events that change the world. With no exaggeration whatsoever, these were events that were world, truly world changing. There's a sense in which we could say that after Pentecost, though happening in a small area geographically, it would definitely change the world. There was something born. There was something empowered at that time. There was a promise fulfilled and a commission begun. Peter spoke of that promise in verse 39, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. The promise is to everyone that the Lord God calls to himself savingly and effectually. And we read in verse 40 with many other words. Many other words he testified and exhorted them. So Peter's sermon was longer than what we have written here. I've tried to point that out a few times because I've had people say, you know, Peter just, it only took two minutes for Peter to preach what he wanted to preach. But verse 40 says, and with many other words. So Peter's sermon is what we have is longer than what we have, but Luke, led by the Spirit of God, gives us the main thrust. And even with many other words, we can see where Peter was focused. With many other words, he did what? He testified and he exhorted them. There were words of exhortation. There were words of testifying. That is, he was testifying to to who Christ was. But it was all an exhortation. And the main theme of the exhortation was, be saved from this crooked, perverse generation. This crooked and perverse generation. Now we're going to get into what that actually means in just a moment. But... You know, when you hear the word exhort, 
immediately think of maybe a motivational speaker. You think of positive words. And so you say, well, Peter's exhorting. And what is he exhorting? Exhortation sounds rather negative. Be saved from this perverse world, this perverse generation. Well, Peter, that sounds rather negative. But in the fact that though it sounds negative, it's a positive thing to do. To be saved from something is to be, it's a very positive thing. Wouldn't you think to be saved from hell is a very positive thing? We read that he testified. He testified to the grace, to the mercy, to the righteousness, to the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone. And in doing so, there was something going on here that we might miss if we, if we, if we read too quickly or read too shallow. As he was doing this, as he was testifying to Christ, he was setting up a contrast. This, here's Jesus Christ. Here's the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's what he did and what he taught. Here's how they, taught, how they treated him. How they abused him. How they, how they said that he was a, a liar. How they spoke these things about him and and so when he says to be saved from this crooked generation, he's saying nothing about the current cultural climate, about the Roman captivity or anything like that. He's saying, be saved from these men. For these men don't know Christ. And they aren't worth listening to. They will send you down the road to destruction. Now we can see this and we point it out because of the fact that he made it clear earlier in the words that we had of his, of his sermon. They took by, by evil hands and crucified him. So he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. These evil men. Jesus would tell one of the churches, seven churches in the book of Revelation that there are those who say they are Jews but are not. They lie. And why do they lie? Because, he says, if they were truly Jews, they would believe in me. Because all the Old Testament pointed to who I am. So we need to stop for a moment in the words that we hear sometimes when we hear them and what they actually mean are different things. So Peter's setting up this contrast between what is true and right on one hand and what is false on the other. He's been bringing forth the person and work of Jesus Christ in comparison with the sin and error of the chief priests and scribes. So his exhortation, because of the word generation, sometimes gets confused. Now, it can mean, generation can mean a group of people live in a certain period of time. Uh, sometimes generations referred to of a period of 30 to 33 years, somewhere around that. And it's used in all kinds of different ways. But here, the way it is specifically pointed out here, 
is a group of men who are very much alike in character and pursuits. A group of men who are very much alike in character and pursuits. See, well, how do you get that? Well, from here, if you want, turn to Matthew chapter 3 in, in verse 7. John is baptizing in the Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, now in the New King James it says brood, but in the, in the old Geneva Bible and in the King James, it's the same word basically as being used in, in Acts chapter 2. He says generation of vipers. Generation of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who is he calling a generation of vipers? Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then if we move on to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is is speaking and, and he is leveling a volley towards and at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Again, verse 33 says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruits bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. And here we go again. Verse 34, Generation of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Well, sometimes in translational work, in order to be more relevant, it might change a word, but in doing so, it takes us a little bit further away from the actual meaning. It consistently in the, in the King James, they've, they've kept it as generation. Uh, and that is, I think, a proper way for before the, uh, any of the others came about for over 400 years, it was translated as generation. In Matthew 23, and verse 23, or 33, excuse me, again, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, serpents, generation of vipers, How can you escape the condemnation of hell? In chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus addresses the Pharisees who had just accused him of being in league with Satan. And in chapter 23, verse 33, he's addressing the scribes and the Pharisees once again. And so when Peter refers to them. He refers to them as a crooked generation. Then that, that word means to be bent. And what it means is they're bent away from the truth. To, to pervert something is to twist it. To misshape it. And this is what is going on. They 
were teaching people not to follow Christ. And so to be free, to be bearers of the truth, they had to be free of the leaven of the Pharisees. You see, a movement that's not founded on truth will fail. And to embrace the teaching of the Pharisees and then try to embrace the teachings of Christ and who He is would be like trying to be in a battle of two kingdoms and trying to be in both armies. To follow them, to follow the Pharisees would be to follow the path and share in the same end that they would have. Their unrepentant hearts their unbelief and rejection of Christ, the Messiah, their malevolent action in evil treatment of Jesus would soon bring them to ruin and to the wrath of God. So Peter says, escape, escape, be saved from this crooked generation. See, Peter had, even at that point, as the Holy Spirit's working on him, He has a true pastor's heart. He sees the souls of the people out there. He's concerned for their souls. And so he says, be saved from this falseness, this untruth, this crooked generation. He's warning. He's exposing danger. See, a pastor is is in some degree called a shepherd. He's very much like a father. And I think as we think back on our times as fathers, we've probably spent more time telling our children what not to do than we have telling them what to do. Matthew 23 in verse 15, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, one convert, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Now you might say, boy, Jesus would be a mean-spirited on that. (laughs) That is Jesus loving the people. Because who's he saying this for? The benefit of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They're not listening to him. The benefit is for those who are in attendance. Most of the parables were set up the same way. He's taking pop shots at, at, the, uh, at the Pharisees and scribes. They're not catching it. But the work is towards those who were there in attendance. They're, they're the ones that are going to be benefited. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. Come to call sinners. So just as with his Lord, Peter is not saying these things for the benefit of the Pharisees, but he has a godly jealousy for the souls of those who would be harmed by their teaching. There can be such a thing as a godly jealousy. God has a godly jealousy. You see, earthly human jealousy is, I'm afraid of losing. 
you're, you're, you're coming into my territory. I'm afraid of losing you taking something that I have. It's based on a certain amount of insecurity. <laughs> With God, there's no, no insecurity. No one's going to take anything away from him that is his. But he's jealous. And you can say zealous if you want to. For the souls of his people. He does not want his people to be taken down the wrong pathway. To be taken down the, the trail of, of deception. And so he speaks very strongly against those who would do something like that. And so Peter's like a father warning his child of a terrible danger. Be saved from this perverse generation of religious leaders. And that exists today. Peter, Paul would then speak to the Ephesian elders and say, you know, as soon as I leave, savage wolves will come. And he wasn't talking about red wolves and gray wolves. He was using uh, the terminology to point to those who would chew up the church. What did the wolves feed on but the sheep? Wolves are numerous, and a good shepherd guards the sheep. You know, oak trees are beautiful things. And they seem very harmless. Except they do drop acorns. Most folks don't even stop to think about it. But if acorns are consumed in any quantity by a horse, it can be deadly. And in pregnant cows, they can cause deformed and stillborn calves. So if you're a proper shepherd, a proper livestock manager, a proper trainer, what do you do? You lead your livestock away from where the acorns are. You see, because like anything else in this fallen world, if there's grass and there's acorns, guess which? Which one generally the cows going to graze on? The acorns. And same with horses. So Peter has given a strong exhortation. And now we see the results. Well then, those people were so mad at Peter for being so negative and so hard on the Pharisees and Sadducees, they just walked away. No. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. Those who gladly received it. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that there were some there who did not receive it. But then there were those who gladly received it. They're the ones referred to in verse 39. As many as the Lord God will call. Their ears by the power of the Spirit were open to hear the truth. Their eyes were now seeing it. Their hearts were receiving it. And so about 3,000 of them were on that day added. You see, they weren't in a, they, they couldn't have been in a better place for this to happen. 
Those who gladly received his word were what? They were baptized. In Jerusalem, you had many baths and many pools all throughout the city because the Jews were fanatics about purification. Now you're out in the town square and you bumped into somebody, oh, I've got to go home and wash now. That was probably a Gentile I bumped up against. Now I'm unclean. And I don't know if that person I bumped up against had touched an unclean or dead body earlier today. So there was this almost obsession with purification, which was another one of the ways that the Old Testament was pointing to Christ. Because you need to be cleansed. You're dirty. And, and so this purification, the idea was pointing to that. musical interlude there. It's a happy little tune. So actually, when it comes to that, uh, those who dug and made baths and pools, that was actually a trade or business that was carried on in the city and and around it. Uh, They were professional diggers for pools and cisterns in the city. And it is said that there were at least 400 baths at least 400 baths at the temple. And they were all large enough to dip an entire body, for they were at least six feet long. So there were plenty of places to do the baptizing in that place. Because some people say, well, 3,000, they got baptized. It says, on that day. On that day. Okay. So what does on that day mean? Well, on that day. <laughs> On that day, that's you can't go anywhere else but there. So on that day, 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, how many were there? I don't know. Were there 12,000? Were there 4,000? Were there 8,000? We don't know. But we do know on that day, 3,000 were added. How do we know? Because they were baptized. It's very much worth noting that the very first people we see in the New Covenant era were baptized upon gladly receiving the truth. In fact, everywhere you go in the book of Acts, that's what happens. They receive the truth, they're baptized. Those who gladly received his word, as they heard him speak, they knew it was God's message to them. For the word of God rightly proclaimed, rightly peaked, Preached is the word of God. Do you believe Jesus speaks to his church? How does he do it? Through the proclamation of his word. The word taught. The word proclaimed. By the way, (laughs) there's always great confusion that exists, especially when people get into areas of prophecy and everything, when people get into Revelation 20 and, and try to make something out of that that's not there. The idea of Satan being bound, that he should no more deceive the nations. Do you know when that took place? During Christ's ministry. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And how, you see that he's in this pit, so that he would not do what? 
deceive the nations anymore. Now in Scripture, who are the nations? Gentiles. And so what do we have during Christ's time and then the apostolic period is this. The Gentiles are being called out of what? Out of darkness into his marvelous light, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. People won't take that term deceive the nations to mean political rulers. and, and No, it's deceiving the nations about Christ, about salvation. That's what that is, is all about. And in this time, Satan is showing that he is bound because he can't run around everywhere deceiving everybody because the truth is going out. You know, Jesus gave that little parable about uh, the strong man. And his house can't be broken into unless someone stronger than him comes along. Well, Satan is the strong man, but Jesus is the stronger man. And he breaks in. And what's in that man's house? The captives. Those who Satan hold captive to sin, he breaks in and they are loosed. Those who gladly received his word, as they heard it, they were moved and they saw the truth for the first time. And that day, and it's important that we see, he said, and that day, that day, what's, there's something very important about that day, historically. Because it was the same day, hundreds of years ago, Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. That day was the day that Jews had historically marked, or marked, made their offerings of the first fruits. And on that day, the gospel was proclaimed to all nations present at Jerusalem for that feast. That day, the first fruits of the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Christ were brought in. They were called effectually. They believed. They were baptized. And then they were added to the church. So on that very first day, the very first sermon, people are warned. Warned about politicians? No. Warned about what to eat and not what to eat? and No. Warned about the society and the culture? No. No. They were warned to flee. Flee from the perverters of the truth. Flee from those who would lead them away from Christ. And there is now, as there were then, a perverse generation. They seem to be presenting Jesus. See, as opposed to the Pharisees and scribes who were just anti-Jesus, now you've got these other generation, crooked generation, 
of those who present a Jesus, but it's not the true Jesus. And a false Jesus is as bad as no Jesus. To be saved from this false, perverse generation, there's a necessity to know the truth, to gladly receive it. And sometimes that truth is going to shake you. How many times over the years I hear people say, well, that's not my Jesus. Well, there's your problem, isn't it? You put that possessive pronoun on the front. And it's not my Jesus, it's this Jesus. And he's not here to fit your mold. He's here to proclaim and and show us the Father. He's here to show us something that our minds will never fully comprehend. And so, as we study God's Word, as we see Jesus in, in what He is doing, and we see His true effect on those who truly believe His Word, we must move away from ever wanting to say, my Jesus. Oh yeah, say, He's my Savior, sure, fine. But not my Jesus in the way that I have set up this form. And everything about it that I hear must fit that form or else. No, no. The form is how he's presented to us in his word by the Spirit. It's not my Jesus. It's this Jesus. Let's stand together for prayer.